0: The press, having gone through this thing the week before, were better prepared, and they were down at the Washington International
1: Airport asking what these things were that were being picked up by radar. We were getting the target returns on the ground. About two or three in the morning, we were still getting these returns.
0: Uh, well, I think it's time for you to have your lysergic acid, drink this down, and we'll be back after a while, and... See how you're doing? They
1: said that they had information that in 1994 there was an actual PSYOPS Air Force document that project that is about, quote, project information power from space. Do you indeed think that there is life on other planets? Well, I'm not quite yes. sure, but I suppose there would be. No, he seems, definite. Mm, he seems definite. Definitely. How do you see this life and where? Oh, I've seen a flying saucer. You've seen one? Yes, definitely. This. Headline, go. I wish
0: I could talk in technical or. We'll let you see. Can you, you say you can see it?
1: No, I can't quite see it. Tell me about it. One or two people have said to me, i said it to myself. That's what Hello and welcome. This is Night Shift Top Secret Information. Your regular hosts, conservative Aunt Anthony Ramondi, and Eric Tanzi are away this week. Anthony is speaking at a Veterans 22-a-day suicide prevention convention, and Eric's getting ready to pack up and take the whole fam, uh, go down to Florida for an event this week. So he asked me to sit in and make sure that you guys who are following Night Shift TSI are not left hanging. My name's John. I actually work for Eric. He's my boss over C-Minus Media. It was uh, his intention to create Night Shift TSI to take you guys down a rabbit hole, chasing after paranormal phenomena government conspiracies, and anything that's a part of the unseen world. For those of you that don't know, uh, the way the show started was actually a few years ago. It uh, started originally as just simply Night Shift. Eric Tanzi hosted the show with uh, former political commentator Mike Edwards, who has uh, since retired and gone on other things. Uh, but over time, the Night Shift mantle has been passed down to a couple different hosts. And during that time, the, na- the nature of the show changed a little bit. It was, uh, at first, it was a call-in show, and it was sort of amazing. Uh, people would call in, and uh, they would see the, say the damnedest things. I can remember one episode, I was listening as a fan at that time, and they had people calling in about their experiences with uh, seeing UFOs, ghosts in the attic, uh, any kind of spooky or zany story. It was absolutely a laugh riot. They also covered other subjects. Uh, they talked about the assassination of JFK, which, if you're a conspiracy guy, uh, that's the biggest one. And they did a great job covering that. Well, like I said, over the years, the show kind of became a true crime show. And so it branched off into two shows. Uh, true Crime uh, got renamed. It's True Crime Tuesday. It's still on the C-Media Network under the banner of Failure to Stop. Eric hosted that show for a while, but... Just recently, was uh, within the past few weeks, he passed it on to me and Kendra. Kendra is a former police officer in Florida. She's a full-time student now, and she's a big true crime buff, and uh, I'm more of a paranormal conspiracy guy, but I like true crime too. And so Eric has handed the show off to us. And so this week we wanted to uh, give you a, a taste of what it's like at the other end of the spectrum of un- the unexplained things. Not conspiracies, not paranormal phenomena, but true crime. And this week, we're covering a pretty well-known case in the annals of true crime, which is the Ketty Cabin Murders. Uh, It was a case back in 1981, where a whole family was slain, a girl was abducted, and the stories about how it all went down is something of a conspiracy itself. Uh, To this day, a website and forums are maintained uh, where people have their own special theories about how it happened and who's responsible, who's to blame. Some of those are pretty wild. Uh, I mentioned that at the end of the episode you're about to hear. But Eric and I had this in common. Uh, when he was a police officer and when I was a correction officer, we both used to be up late at night sitting in our Crown Vicks uh, listening to the radio. And we would listen to a show called uh, Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie. It was this uh, show that was on AM radio. And they would uh, just talk about the wildest things. I think that that's what Eric's trying to bring to you now podcast format kind of carry the torch of that old show Uh, eric's not george nori i don't think he's trying to be i don't think any of us could be eric tansy either so i think eric just wants to be eric but i hope that you'll enjoy this episode of uh, true crime tuesday in place of tsi this week if you uh, like what you hear you can go over and look for us on failure to stop there's a whole slew of shows but true crime tuesday airs every tuesday night on youtube on that channel failure to stop You can also find us a bunch of other places if you do a little of investigating on your own. If you want to hear those original Night Shift episodes with Eric and Mike, they're out there. Got to go digging for those on YouTube as well. And uh, Anthony and Eric will be back to continue their journey down the rabbit hole next week. Hope you enjoy. Folks, this is a hallowed season. It is the season of Halloween. It's a spooky time. And uh, although we are here to educate, entertain, and inform first responders, we're also here to give you though all those spine tingly feelings of true crime. This month, Kendra Drama. Hello, Kendra. Hi, John. Hello. This month we are <laughs> doing. Uh, we have we have five Tuesdays in in October this year, which only happens every one thousand years or so. And uh, this this month we're doing all the true crime cases that inspired all the hit horror movies. So. Uh, It was uh, last week or the week before we did Ed Gein who inspired Psycho and Leatherface and uh, Buffalo Bill from Sons of the Lambs. This week we're doing a case that has inspired uh, The Strangers which you just saw that I legally watched. I did that to prove that I watched (laughs) it because Kendra has been Really pushing me to watch movies right here so I know what the hell's going on. So I did that to prove that I watched it. Pretty good movie. If you haven't watched it, go out and watch The Strangers. It's only about 85 minutes long, which I kind of like. They didn't add a lot of extra padding. It was just kind of a nice, creepy story. We're going to talk about the real case that inspired that. Of course, the, the true case is actually, uh, in my opinion, it's even more horrible and scary uh, than the movie. Uh, but before we get to that, Kendra, just how have you been? How's the last, last week for you?
0: It's been really busy but good just doing a whole lot of research and not sleeping and yeah. you know if you don't same thing you do <laughs> yes if you,
1: if you guys don't know kendra's a full-time student she's a part-time podcaster and uh she's a real busy person so we're uh, grateful to have her here uh no one can replace her. So thank you, Kendra, for being here. I appreciate you.
0: I am the one unique white woman <laughs> in the, the world. You're the one unique white woman. <laughs> <The> one- <laughs> we
1: talked about that last week where uh, we true crimes, basically basic white woman show. So thank you for being here. <laughs> we appreciate you. Before we get started with all the mystery, murder, and mayhem, I wanted to mention our sponsors who make this show possible. Spooky, is sponsor first. That means Ghostbed. We love Ghostbed. Great company. They uh, care about first responders and veterans. That's why they're going to give you the offer code. You can go there and support first responders and veterans, and you can do that by supporting us because we support you, of course. They have uh, great technology there at Ghost Bed Sleep. So good it's scary, as Eric loves to say. But they have great uh, technology over there. Their proprietary cooling technology that keeps you cool even on a nice October evening just like this one. Uh, adjustable bases cooling mattresses you can get them uh, with zero percent down zero percent financing even if you have basic white woman credit (laughs) we love ghost bed because they're (laughs) the only mattress that's made in the united states of america kendra i don't know if you remember but back in the day i want to bring this back because drew won't do it with me on thursday but we used to go it's the only mattress made in that and they they do the usa chant from rocky four have you seen rocky four
0: I'm sure they all kind of blend together after the second okay. one.
1: They do not. Uh, r- Rocky, <laughs> for me, they do. Because Rocky 5 is the bad one. But actually, uh, this, this is a good time for me to mention that November, we're actually doing all the true crime cases that have inspired boxing movies. So look forward to that next yep. month. <laughs> Just like, I'm going to quit before that. <laughs> but, Name four
0: boxing movies right now. <laughs> Raging Bull, Rocky, <laughs> Rocky 2,
1: Rocky 3, <laughs>
0: No. <laughs> Creed.
1: Creed okay. two. Uh, no.
0: You can't name sequels.
1: Oh. It's a franchise. They're discreet boxing movies. Uh, that one uh where the woman boxes and it's a Clint Eastwood movie, and she she gets put in in the it, it doesn't turn out so good for her. What's the name of that movie?
0: Million Dollar Baby.
1: Thank you. That one counts as one that I mentioned. Um <laughs> Okay. And you said four boxing movies. What's the fourth boxing movie? I think
0: you did four. Southpaw, that's an immediate one that came to my Thank head. Thank
1: you. Oh, All right. Well, I don't think I named four if we don't count franchises because Creed and Rocky are part of the same franchise. So
0: Okay. Well, so
1: Creed continues on with Rocky.
0: We should well, just- That's why we're a team. Together we did four. Yes, Fine.
1: together, and uh, I'm glad you didn't say name 10 boxing movies because I that would have been a whole deal. Anyway, no. so what are we doing? Oh, so we're going back to our sponsors, <laughs> Ghostbed. Okay. So they used to do the chant where they go, it's the only mattress made in the good old USA, USA, USA. So
0: Mike, USA, yeah. Yes, so
1: Mike and Eric did this, but because of the lag of technology, they never got it quite right. So it was a process of perfection, right? You and I have have inherited the mantle of Failure to Stop, at least on Tuesday nights. We're carrying the torch forward into the future. I would like to bring that back. So if you can, if you can just listen to the first 100 episodes of Failure to Stop, they're still available on YouTube, and just kind of just listen for the GhostBed ad reads. I'd appreciate it. Anyway, uh, no problem. that's behind us. So go to GhostBed.com forward slash get sleep. So good. It's scary. Folks, we're serious about GhostBed. We joke about it, but they, they have been a loyal sponsor to us. So if you want... To support your favorite podcast, you want to see us going, continuing on in 2024, support us through Ghostbed Kendra, turning now (laughs) to true crime. John. Come back to the show. Uh, We're talking (laughs) about the Kenny Cabin murder. murder. So this inspired The Strangers. And also, have you seen the movie Cabin 28? I I saw that on IMDb, but I don't think I've ever seen it.
0: No, I haven't either. It looks like right up my alley, though. I like the really crappy B and C rate horror movies. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they're always free on Amazon and they're just an hour of ridiculousness. And that's kind of what that looks like. So, but I haven't seen it yet.
1: So. so I know that you like, it was Return of the Living Dead, right? I'm tasked with watching that. Mm-hmm. But what's your other yes. like guilty pleasure, terrible horror movie? favorite. Oh, favorite my, one? Any...
0: Oh. That's hard. I really, really enjoy... you know actually it's funny because i actually really enjoy um any movie that has uh how do i explain this
1: boxing all
0: the actresses all the actresses are actually like porn stars and they cast them for these really bad horror movies like vampire hookers um nazi surfers must die uh uh, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, Frank and Hooker, they're all hookers. And um, <laughs> they're they're really bad movies, but they're fucking hilarious. And I just they put me in the mood to just be spooky. I don't know. They make me laugh. Um, so any of those.
1: Yeah, there was a show. You mentioned Frankenstein. <laughs> There's a movie with Aaron Eckhart. And, and it's I, I can't remember what it's about. It's about Frankenstein or something. It's about it's about Dr. Frankenstein, I think. Anyway, uh, so anyway, you don't need to understand the plot of the movie to understand this point, but I remember watching this movie, and this is why I don't get into horror movies, right? So the bad guy played, played by Aaron Eckhart, he has all these lackeys, right? And uh, so some of his lackeys let him down. The hero's doing a great job or whatever. And uh, so, like, he kills one of them as a demonstration of what a bad guy he is. You know, in movies, bad guys are always killing their lackeys to show how bad they're. And then he turns to the other lackeys is like, hurry up and, you know, finish this machine that will turn all humans into vampires or whatever. (laughs) And and it's just like, you know, these lackeys are really letting you down. It's like you're telling me that, like, if you're a mortal, you don't have time to earn a degree in science to make this machine yourself. (laughs) It's like I I do not have time to earn a degree. (laughs) Fix my machines. I don't know. Guys, I'm sorry for that story. It just was a, a, the reason why I, I can't watch movies. I get I get uh, thrown out of them by little moments like that that don't make sense.
0: The only vampires that I know of in movies that like make something with their lives are the uh, the Cullens from Twilight. But I'm not going to sit here and admit that I watched Twilight as a white woman who enjoys true crime and all the other accoutrements of being a white woman.
1: Accoutrements. <laughs> uh, it was I, Frankenstein, Aaron Eckhart, Played Adam in that movie 2014. Uh, you know, I love Aaron Eckhart from Thank You for Smoking and uh, Dark Knight. Other than that, I just, I don't know, I'm not sure that you should really go for him. But so, uh, Cabin (laughs) 28 is uh, a movie that this inspired. I'm gonna, I'm gonna help tell this story because I did a lot of research this week. We wanted to see what it's like if uh, both of us tell a story rather than me just endlessly questioning you. So, uh, (laughs) This case started out as, as, a, as a, a, a little bit of a triple homicide, I guess, uh, to set the stage. I'd jump in at any point here if I miss anything, or if you've got an interesting tidbit, or uh, whatever. But it starts, uh, it starts uh, in 1980, and it starts uh, on the East Coast, I believe, Connecticut. There's this lady, and her name is uh, Glenna Sue Sharp. She just goes by Sue, and uh, she's got a daughter who's uh, named Tina. And a son named John and uh, a bunch of
0: other kids. She has five children. She has five.
1: So who can even keep yes. them straight? I know one's named Greg and he's like five. <laughs> he's got a bunch of kids. So
0: go ahead yeah, if you know the children,
1: because that's actually really important to keep all the kids straight. It is
0: important. Yeah. Go We've ahead. got fifteen year old fifteen year old John, fourteen year old Sheila, twelve year old Tina, ten year old Rick, and five year old Greg.
1: Okay. So there's a falling out. They get thrown out of their house. Uh, the husband, the dad basically tells them to get the hell out of here. And they move to this town. Uh, they move to a trailer in the interim, which nothing terrible happens there. And then they move to this town called Ketty, California. And what Ketty is, is up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And it's kind of this failing resort town. Like it actually seems kind of creepy just from the outset. So like you've got a town that's failing. Uh, at some point, uh, it was a stop for trains that were passing through. And you know the old story. No one rides trains anymore. The trains get diverted. There's no more gold in them, there hills. The trains are not coming anymore. But there's still a community here. So what was once uh, the ketty Cabin Resort that has all these pristine little, uh, you know, kind of rustic cabins, uh, these kind of turn to uh, cheaper housing. And the town kind of comes a place uh, where where transients and nomadic people Kind of come and go. it's not a big town, it's north of Quincy, and uh, it's not a, it's not very big not not a lot of population, uh, but people are coming and going, and it's so these cabins kind of become low income housing so uh, they separated Sue separates from her husband, she gets kind of some kind of stipend from the Navy because he's a service member and uh, they're uh, they're divorced, so the alimony kind of, I guess kind of comes straight from the Navy and she's being paid what was it two hundred and fifty dollars a month or something like that. Some, yeah, two hundred fifty a month. Some very low amount, and I know what you're what you're thinking. Well, you know, to, that's incredibly low. That's basically nothing. In nineteen eighty one, that comes out to like more than eight hundred dollars today, but it's still not a lot to raise five kids on. Uh, but it's, it's basically going to be paying the rent. So she's got to have some kind of some sort of other form of income, and her her where her income comes from at some point is a matter. Of, in the case, it's kind of disputed or. It's. It might be a clue as, well, as to what happened, but sometime uh, on April eleventh or April twelfth, depending on on what uh, when this happened, uh, something very went bad went down at uh, Sue's cabin, and uh, was it uh, which, which girl was it that came back in the morning Sunday morning was it Sheila, and came upon Well,
0: I have a pretty good. Go ahead. I have a pretty good timeline here. If you want me to just go through that. Oh, I love um,
1: timelines. They, so they we keep can keep rambling. it straight. Yes.
0: Yes, I got you. I got you. So, uh, just to go back to backtrack a little bit, they moved to the cabins in April of 81. So, they're only here for like not even two weeks before this happens, which kind of later on we'll talk about theories and stuff like that of what happened. But it's kind of weird to me that all of this came to a head within like 11 or 12 days. I don't know what that's about. but um, <clears throat> So, April 11th, Sue, Sheila, and Greg drive to a nearby town to pick up the uh, 10-year-old from a baseball tryout. When they're driving back, they see John, the other son, the oldest son, and his friend, Dana, trying to hitchhike back to uh, to Keddie. So, they stop and pick them up. All of them, everyone goes back to the cabins. 3.30 the same day, John and Dana hitchhike again to Quincy, where they're last seen alive in the downtown area. Um, Sheila goes to her friend's house. They live in the resort as well, the Seabolts. She goes over there around 8 p.m., Her sister, Tina, the 12-year-old, follows her over there. And Tina goes back home at about 10 o'clock at night. So, at this point, uh, Sue, at 10 o'clock, Sue, Tina, Greg, Rick, are at the house that we know of. Um, So, the night goes on. The next morning, Sheila comes back to the house from the Seabolt's to change, because they're going to go to church together. Um, she comes home around between 7 and 8 o'clock in the morning and she opens the door to find her mother, John, and his friend Dana, dead on the living room floor.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: And <clears throat> Yeah, the scene is pretty violent. It's very bloody. Um, it's very much like the house is in a disarray, like there's just crap everywhere. Um, Sheila goes back to the Seabolt's and gets the father, who comes back over and goes in and sees the scene. Uh, somehow or another, Rick and Greg, along with their friend Justin Smart, were asleep in the bedroom just off the living room where the bodies were found. They were still sleeping. Almost like they like didn't hear anything or see anything. So the father, the C- Mr. Seabolt, he goes in, he sees this, he sees the boys. He gets them out through the window so they don't have to see what's occurred. Um and obviously then they call law enforcement. Uh one issue, nobody can find Tina. She's gone and she's twelve, mind you.
1: But uh the police did not initiate uh, you know, what we would call today an Amber Alert, which is, you know, uh, a widespread announcement that, uh, you know, uh, an endangered juvenile has been abducted. That didn't even exist at this point, but they're a little bit underreactive to the missing Tina initially.
0: They are. Um, And during the investigation, they did do the right thing and contact the FBI. I think, uh, They probably realized they were a little in over their heads with this because, like you mentioned earlier, it's a really small town. It's probably very quiet, not a lot going on. And now they have a missing 12-year-old and a triple homicide on their hands. Um, So they contact the FBI and the FBI comes out initially, but for whatever reason, they don't feel like there's enough evidence or signs to say that Tina was abducted, which, hello, well,
1: let's go through the signs. Do they think maybe she just got scared and ran away? Let's let's go through the crime scene and see what uh, they're talking yes. about. So let's,
0: let's... So... Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> let's do it. Um, okay, let's do it. So the scene. All the victims were uh, bound with cords and medical tape, duct tape, all that good stuff. Sue had been stabbed repeatedly in the chest and neck. Um... The suspect was stabbed her so hard that he or she uh, pierced through her la- larynx. Am I saying that right? I larynx.
1: Believe I believe it's larynx. Yes. Good job. <laughs> Thank I, <you>. think, <laughs> I think they they stabbed through a larynx and did it sever a, the the bone at the back the or it, her it, spinal cord. Yeah, it did serious damage. And I believe a knife that was found at the scene was bent to a thirty degree angle.
0: Yes. Uh, I'm assuming that's the one that they use to do that because that takes a lot of force to get through somebody's neck like that.
1: And uh, just, just, yeah, and stabbing somebody's neck. It's not like what you see in the movie where they just go through like that. Like to get through, Mm -hmm. like the muscles and the fibers in the neck. And, and all this stuff, it's it's like cutting through. Forgive the analogy, but it's like cutting through the worst parts of a turkey. If you've carved a turkey before, you're gonna come. You're gonna go through ligaments and and different different fibrous tissues, and it's harder than hell to get through that. So in order to stab somebody like that, to get through that tissue, to get to the floor and then bend the knife, I mean, you are really stabbing the hell out of her. I mean, that's a vicious, violent act.
0: It's uh, yeah. The investigators make. A note that it's apparent that whatever occurred was a personal attack. Like Seems that they way. think they, yeah, they obviously think that the sharps knew their attackers. Um,
1: That's a good. The qu- imprint. That's a good question. I don't mean to interrupt you. You just you inspire all these no. good thoughts. Was there any any signs of forced entry into the home or anything?
0: No. Um. I will get to that in a second because it's kind of weird. Um, okay. But the imprint uh sue was stabbed and beaten and all this um the imprint of the butt of a long gun was also found on the side of her head um that gun was later uh, identified as a daisy 880 pellet gun so um i would think that that was used to intimidate the uh victims into complying with whatever these people were doing because obviously you're not going to kill anybody with a pellet gun no um there was no sign of sexual assault, um, which is good. John was stabbed and bludgeoned. Dana was also bludgeoned by two hammers. So the boys were beaten to death, essentially.
1: Wasn't? Uh, um, I don't mean to correct you. I just wasn't one. Of, one of them was bludgeoned, but the other one was actually strangled. Wasn't it Dana, the friend who was strangled?
0: So the autopsies revealed that Sue and John died of blunt force trauma. I would assume that it was the pellet gun to the side of the head for sue and john was bludgeoned with a hammer dana's cause of death was strangulation however the detectives noted that his beating that he suffered i'm assuming post-mortem because it was so bad or maybe pre and post i don't know uh was very violent and so violent that there was blood spatter on all four walls of the living room the ceiling All the way to the back steps, inside of the bedroom on the bed sheets, that was adjacent to the living room. So the way the house was set up, it was a a living room and a kitchen, like a kitchenette type thing. And just off the living room was a bedroom. Inside that bedroom, there was blood spatter.
1: Yeah, we we studied so pretty violent. We we studied the the science of blood spatter, how that works in college. Actually, it was probably the the best class I had. And the way that blood gets onto a ceiling is actually through a process called cast-off. When you're bludgeoning Mm -hmm. someone and you take the hammer and you strike it down, and then when you retreat to strike again, as you take the hammer back quickly, a lot of the blood will fly off and it will fly onto the walls and the ceiling. And when you're looking at the droplets and you're measuring the droplets, you could tell a lot about the speed and the angle that that blood, uh, how it arrived onto the ceiling. And although it would be very clear that these people were bludgeoned to death, I mean, you have bodies right there, uh, You could it, it just helps you drive home the absolute savagery that these people were beaten so hard that as this person is hitting them, blood is flying all around the room.
0: <clears throat> yeah, and in two other rooms that are not, it's not as if they were in the doorway of this bedroom or even near it. If you see the crime scene photos, you can tell the bodies were... There's a couch in the middle of the living room, and the bodies were kind of more towards the front door. Opposite the front door is the bedroom. So they're, they're really, like you said, they're being completely savage with this, and it's very violent. It's very aggressive, and it. I'm assuming it went on for a while to get it to be that bad.
1: There's one last detail about the uh, bodies, just because I'm a stickler for the details, and if you like murder, please, mystery, and mayhem, please, well, I don't mean to to step on you, on your energy and your momentum. Just one last.
0: Detail. No, I'm saying please go. Oh.
1: <laughs> you know, folks, I don't know if you realize this, like we we have to do this podcast as a stipulation of our divorce. So, not <laughs> neither one of us is happy to be here, Uh but we are we are forced to do this. <laughs> Thank you. Honorable Judge Henshaw, for setting this up, it is, it is court ordered. <laughs> it is, this is America's first court ordered podcast. Going back to Sue, <laughs> so she was stabbed through the throat. They were both uh, they were both bound uh, with electrical cords with medical tape. The two boys were bound uh, separately and then together. But uh, one detail with with Sue that's super important because uh, the way that you find a crime scene, the way that you find bodies, is so illustrative for the, the killer psychology. Uh, she Her panties were removed. They were balled up and stuffed in her mouth and used as a gag. And then I believe it was tape that was placed over to keep her silent. And um, so in spite of that, like the first thing you think of when you hear that is you think sexual assault. She was not sexually assaulted. Uh, but before the killer left, they did uh, partially drape uh, something over her. I mean it was still evident that she was naked. Uh, I believe it was over her face, if I'm not mistaken. It's something Mm -hmm. like that, that they always go into on podcasts, which we won't go into too much because, you know, as, as a former police officer, I think, you know, that, uh, that when people are sitting there, you know, thinking about the murders they just committed, they don't think about what neat clues will I leave behind. Or I also don't think people are possessed of very deep thoughts in a moment like that. This seems like a frenzied thing, something that's not well thought out. But a lot of times, like in these true crime podcasts, they're like, oh, they didn't want the victim to look at them. You know, the, the dead eyes gazing up from the floor was was just too much. But it is, no, it is worth noting that she was partially covered and the boys were not. So it's like since she was treated differently, the boys were bound together. Does the killer know her specifically? Is she the motive? Is she the target? You know, if it was all just opportunity uh, and this was about power, if it was about sex, you know, you'd think if, if you went to the trouble to do that, uh, that, that rape would have been an inevitable outcome or something like that. But it's mm-hmm. so hard to know because these things aren't as conclusive as other, other crime scenes that maybe you've heard of before that are more direct. So the way that she was left, the way that I won't say stage, but the way she was left was sort of strange. Go ahead.
0: Well, they, <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Cause you're absolutely right. And I agree with you. Um, so, and it's a good point to keep in mind because I do think that sometimes there's a lot of speculation on a podcast on a true crime podcast, because you don't know that you don't know the reason why it could have been an accident. They could have been moving stuff around. And I mean, you don't know. So yes, the fantastical Hollywood explanation of why killers do what they do is more fun to listen to. It's, you don't really know. So I appreciate you bringing that up. You're welcome. Um, (laughs) Thank you for ignoring me. (laughs)
1: We have such passive-aggressive texts throughout the day. Again, this is court-ordered. Neither one of us wants to be here. We have to do this.
0: <laughs> um, as you were saying earlier, the there was no forced entry into the home. And the phone was left hanging off the ringer so that nobody could make calls or bring calls in. There were some reports that said the line was cut. Some said it was just off the wall. Mm-hmm. Regardless, that occurred. So for all of
1: you uh, young people who don't remember what phones are, like real phones, uh, you would have a cradle. Landline. You have a cradle and a handset. And if you didn't want someone to call in, you didn't want them to, 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 uh, you didn't want the phone to ring. you would take the, the handset off the cradle, you would get a dial tone, saying, meaning, basically go ahead and dial your number. But after a <laughs> while, it would beep to let you know that it's off the cradle, and then after that, it would just go silent. At that, at that point, you know, no one can call in. You can call out. You have to replace the, the handset under the receiver until you get a dial tone again. But if you take the handset off the receiver, no one can call in. Uh, no one can call out until you, re- you reset that. So if you're looking for a distraction-free environment, that's how you would do that. But sometimes you see it in old TV shows and movies where a character comes in. He's pissed off. He's had a bad day. Walks over to the phone. Takes it off the hook. That's what that's about. He doesn't want anybody to call him. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. Um. I have my list of evidence here, but I think we covered it all. No sign of forced entry, no fingerprints. I think there was one.
1: What do you make of that? What does that suggest to you?
0: So, it was in the autopsy of uh, Dana, it was clear that he was beaten with two different types of hammers. One of them was recovered at the scene, and the other one was missing. Okay. Which is very odd, and I'm kind of foreshadowing a little bit, so sorry, but in my opinion, I think one of the hammers they probably found there Mm -hmm. like a weapon of opportunity. And maybe the other one belonged to one of the killers and maybe it was specific or had their name on it or something. And they didn't want to leave it behind. So they took it with them.
1: Well, you keep tiptoeing around it. You keep saying killers and they, so you, you think there's two people involved.
0: Well, let's look at the scene and think about this because there's three people, two of which are teenage boys
1: the other ones in a older teenage boys
0: and a grown ass woman. There's multiple weapons. And unless one person could overcome three people, there was a sign of struggle. So there was a fight um, based on the way the blood stains were on the carpet. Someone would have to be on PCP, which is possible to, or some sort of be some sort of mountain man to control three people all at once it's very chaotic i mean i i've been to calls and scenes where there's multiple people fighting with each other and it's there's a lot going on so to control somebody granted they had a pellet gun mm-hmm. it's possible they got them lined up on the couch and they just one by one mm-hmm. and a singular individual did that but to me it makes more sense that two people at least would come in and do this home invasion essentially oh well Maybe not a home invasion. There's no forced entry, but mm-hmm. it turns into one, right at some point. So
1: I do agree with just, your, I agree with your two suspect model. Uh, just because I like to play Dick, or excuse me, critical thinker. <laughs> I like to play critical thinker, a devil's advocate at every step of the way. Uh, you got somebody in there with with a gun. Yes, welcome to podcasting with me. You got uh, somebody in there. Uh, they've got a gun. You've got two boys. Point the gun at him. I imagine the guy's sitting down. He's very relaxed. He's calm. Points the gun at him. Uh, tells the boys or one of the boys to uh, restrain mom, restrain, restrain Sue. And then uh, the boys, uh, one boy to uh, tape up the other one. And then finally, once you've got two that are, that are subdued or whatever, uh, maybe you can finally take care of the last one. Maybe the boys were first, or then Sue. I'm sorry, I've never done this before, so I don't know the correct order in which you, ta- you, you tape up and bind people. Uh, but the if r- it were me, go ahead.
0: It, sorry to interrupt you, John. No, I love it. Go if ahead. If it were <laughs> if it were me, and I was going to do that as a singular person, I would put a gun to John's head and tell Sue, "I'm gonna f- I'm gonna fucking kill him if you don't do this." Oh,
1: perfect. Yes, doing that. Because uh, that's her baby. That's, uh, yes, exactly. Like, uh, remember uh, In the Green Mile? <laughs> yes. This is about movies, but it's like, he killed him with the love boss, Because if you haven't <laughs> seen that movie, basically, this horrible guy, Wild Bill, uh, he commits crimes. Uh, he had these two girls he raped and killed both of them. And he told each of the girls that if either one of them screamed out, that they would kill the other girl. They were two sisters. So tells girl A, if you scream, I'm going to kill girl B. He tells girl B, if you scream, I'm going to kill girl A. Anyway, they, they use, uh, well, Bill in this scenario used the affection and love that the sisters had for each other to keep them from uh, calling out for help. So it could very well be that situation. I'm not at all terrified mm-hmm. that you know exactly how to take, uh, take control of three people at gunpoint. That you just like, I don't even need an accomplice. Back to the story, <laughs> <laughs> guys. Can you it's all stuff Kedra I learned in the police accomplice? academy. Kendra, with an accomplice, she could like murder an entire bus <laughs> full of people. Not even just her and that other accomplice. Not even break a sweat. Go ahead.
0: Okay, so, my mind is going to how to get rid of a body effectively and not have it be found.
1: Oh my gosh, I don't <clears throat> want to be deposed later, so don't mention that here. <laughs>
0: okay, so in all of the chaos and all of this. Uh, craziness that's going on um still again there is a 12 year old girl missing and there's no sign of her anywhere good point that's Tina, last time right? she was yes her her shoes are gone a coat of hers is gone she's only 12 she doesn't have a lot of possessions i mean she's not taking car keys and things like that well she's definitely not taking a cell phone because it's 1981 that but didn't even exist. um no so she's gone and like i said earlier the fbi came initially but because they had nothing to go on, they apparently backed off, which blows my mind because hello. I learned something. what the fuck
1: else do you think happened? I learned something else today, just today about Tina, actually, and uh, I don't know if you heard this or not, but apparently she was a special needs kid.
0: Oh, is that true?
1: That's what they say, which back in 81, you know, if someone was in special needs, they could have just been uh, not not a very good student. You could have been placed in a Head Start program or something. You got to remember back in 81, this is really before we were massively like even um, diagnosing what we used to call ADD and more accurately call ADHD and uh, a plethora of a spectrum of other behavioral disorders. And so who knows? You know, if you say she's a special needs student, she could just be someone who has what is way more commonly known now as ADHD. She just has problems paying attention in school. Her grades aren't just very good. It could be as simple as that. So we have no idea the level of functioning saying on something like, well, she's a special needs student or something like that. So, yeah. But if they did view her as being uh, you know, having a diminished capacity, did they think maybe she saw the murder and fled into the woods? Uh, either way, if it's not the FBI looking for it, you should have – Caddy Fire and Rescue or Quincy Fire and Rescue out there doing search and rescue in the woods for, I would think. I don't know if they made that effort or not.
0: I could not find anything on that. And sometimes with these older, I say older, it's not that old, but sometimes with these older cases...
1: These John-era murders, yes.
0: (laughs) If you combine the time with where they're at, a lot of these investigations do get botched because they don't have the resources Sometimes just because of the time frame, like in the 80s, there was in 81, there was no DNA. The training was probably not great there. They probably just didn't know what the fuck to do, to be honest with you. They probably just had a very uh, black and white sense of, well, if this isn't there, then we're not going to do that, period.
1: If if Ketty's a resort you know, town and a failing one at that, and they have a largely transient population... I'm guessing that the sheriff's office was the one doing the law enforcement here. There's probably no local PD. Yeah. If they're new to the area, if they're new to the area, probably no one even knew the girl. I mean, Sheila, who discovered her family, uh, would definitely be able to say, you know, where's Tina? I don't know where she's at. There's so much chaos and confusion, though, and she's beside herself. And like I said, no local authorities know the family. I mean, the other people who live in the neighborhood, I say that is a cluster of cabins could probably say she's missing, but yeah, I mean, they were, they were probably horror struck and doing a hundred things. And you and I know that when a crisis happens, there's so much that all of a sudden is on your plate. And I don't want to say that like trying to attempt to locate a little kid is low priority. Cause it's obviously the top priority, but I, I can understand why And when something that terrible happens, uh, it's, it's not getting done right away like it should. Uh, but yeah. there's also other kids at the scene who, despite being only a few feet away from a vicious and savage attack with a hammer, slept through the night. Uh, do we want to talk about the kids that were there and and uh, how they were discovered at the scene and how they how that all went down?
0: Yeah, you you have excellent timing because that's my next note is the interviews. Um, of <laughs> good job. So <laughs> the investigators obviously are doing what we call a neighborhood canvas, trying to get as much information as they can about what happened. There are neighbors that say at 9 o'clock at night they saw a green van parked in front of the Sharps' house for a few for a while. Um,
1: Dana and John would still be in Quincy at that time, we presume, or maybe that was their right home. We don't know.
0: Yeah, we have no idea because okay. the last time they were seen alive was in downtown Quincy, but they left at 3.30, so we don't know what time that was or when they got back or anything like that. Keep going. <clears throat> One neighbor. Okay. <laughs> One,
1: I will. Damn it.
0: <laughs> I'm currently doing that. Um, if you keep yelling at me, I'm going to call Judge Henshaw and make him. Damn it. Yeah. Anyway. Why do you have his personal number? <laughs> I wait. I don't want to know. Go back to, back to the story. <laughs> That's the real reason we got divorced. Damn it. <laughs> you think you could just leave me for a
1: successful attorney who became a judge?
0: <laughs> doesn't help that he's like 95 years old i am not successful
1: like in a measurable sense okay i get that but <laughs> i would like to think that i have a certain intangible
0: <laughs> oh my god anyway um so yes the van in front of the house at nine o'clock a neighbor uh in a cabin close by heard muffled screaming coming from somewhere at about 1 in the morning it's not good, but they they couldn't figure out where the source was. They kind of knew it was close, but they didn't call.
1: I will say about um, that: uh, there was a different culture back in the eighties that um, stuff that goes on in families. You generally it was seen as sort of taboo to report that. Like if a family had troubles, you just knew that family had troubles. If a, if a woman showed up, you know, to pick up Johnny from school and she had a black eye, you knew what was going on, but you didn't tell anybody. You viewed it as a family problem to get resolved by itself. So if you think there's just family problems going on in this cabin, which I hate to make a broad generalization, but you know this, these are low-income families. They're stressed out about money. I wouldn't be surprised if there's uh, you know domestic stuff going on in these cabins, maybe more regularly, or like I just said, it's part of the of culture, but they didn't always report these things. But there's also this thing I learned about in college that I have never heard from anyone else on earth, but it's called the bystander effect. You see, there was once this lady named Kitty Genovese, and she was being raped and beaten and murdered in a clear open view in the entire neighborhood. I believe this was in New York. Everyone could see and hear this. And they all heard poor Kitty down there yelling and screaming, and everyone thought the same thing. Somebody else will call it in. So so poor Kitty Genovese, uh, she was found murdered, and not one goddamn neighbor uh, made a report. So it's a real human phenomenon where everyone just assumes that everyone else has got it. No one wants to be a hero. No one wants to get out of bed. Plus, these being rustic cabins, it's entirely possible that not every one of them had a phone. You know, if you go on vacation to these things, they're not all created equal. So,
0: it's a good point too. Yeah, I didn't take that into account, but you're right. Not every not every cabin even had um, like hot running water at this resort. So, that's a good point. Um, they the investigators also interviewed the three boys that were there. That night that seemingly sucked through this initially none of them they said none of them heard or saw anything but uh justin smart who was the neighbor boy that was staying the night he was put under hypnosis at some point in the investigation which kudos to them because wow so and, the, so
1: this <coughs> is 10 year old rick five-year-old greg and then justin smart who's a neighbor boy they were sleeping in the room and they were they were unharmed in this attack and correct so Sheila comes finds them she she runs out and then uh, they went and they'd contacted the property manager and then I think it was uh, the seabolt uh, matriarch or patriarch who came in and he went around and he saw the three boys in the back bedroom and he actually took them out through the window uh, yes so that they didn't have to see the carnage of their Their dead, their murdered mom and brother and friend, which is correct, very smart, actually.
0: Yeah, um, so they didn't see the actual uh occurrence, which is great, but Justin did, uh, while he was under hypnosis, say that he saw two men in the home, he described them to a volunteer sketch artist,
1: and it is constantly described. As having no talent, folks. If you read, hear a podcast about this, you read any articles, they're all just like the police resorted to finding a man who had never before put pen to paper. They found someone who was completely (laughs) devoid of talent. Someone who should probably be just totally disregarded. Respect. Like I'll show you this drawing in a second. Like, folks, you you know me. I'm a little bit of an artist. Like I'm not a professional artist either. I did illustrate a. A book that didn't have to be realistic, of course, but of of Eric Tanzi, a real person that you all know. And I could tell you that there's certain things about drawing a person where if you don't have any skill, you end up with, even as an adult, you wind up with pretty much like a smiley face or uh, a childish drawing or like, you know. So they said this person doesn't have any skill. I'm going to say they don't have skills as a forensic artist, which if you're going to sit down and draw someone from the verbal cues like a professional artist would – that's a whole other thing than what I do. I cannot do that. So in a sense, this person has no skill. In a strictly artistic sense, this person would be very good at drawing a bowl of fruit or a tree <laughs> in late autumn, a November tree. Very good at that. Uh, probably good at uh, sketching a cloud, maybe watercolors or clay. Maybe even sculpture is their thing. So You're they're being
0: not, very generous. you are not a
1: talentless person, but they did draw these people as suspects. Boom, not that good. And I also want to say this about the drawings. So, people in 1981, we did not look that good back in the 80s. Like, like this guy, this guy on the right, probably pretty accurate. We did not, and the mustaches in the 80s, they were not cool. They were not cool Top Gun mustaches like what we have now. Um, uh, also, there's a bit.
0: Can you imagine these these two coming in? I, honestly, ordering you around. Hold on a second. You- I
1: I insist you be silent. So,
0: <laughs>
1: okay. so I'm just kidding. I don't I don't insist. So the so when I was a kid, you would watch Unsolved Mysteries, right? Like they would always show you these sinister drawings. Sometimes they would be sinister child drawings, like what kids see at night when they're sleeping. But uh, crying, but these forensic sketches always scared the hell out of me because there was something creepy and un- inhuman and you have, they're obviously usually drawn with a neutral expression so that you can recognize them anywhere. They're not smiling. They're not happy. Like these two people clearly look like they just killed a couple of folks, <laughs> right? But, but look at them like they got... They, the, the guy went over... Kedra. <laughs> the guy went over... Sorry. Okay, to show the opaque nature of light refracting <laughs> through glass, he went over with the eraser and lessened the detail of the eyes. Uh, also, look at the shading uh, around the sides of the chin and the neck, the guy on the right-hand side. That shows some dimension. It's a three-dimensional person. It's not It's not Slender Man. It's not Paper Mario that killed these guys. Uh, also, you know, we got secondary sex characteristics here. Always a good choice. Guy on the right, got an Adam's apple. Guy on the left, got a mustache. Uh, but uh, hair, very bad. Eyebrows, pretty much the same. <laughs> They've never seen eyebrows before. Uh, both wearing t-shirts with... The ex- they're wearing the exact same outfit, which happens sometimes. I mean, you show up to a murder and the person's wearing the same thing as you. You're like, Do you, does one of us even have to change? You're like, no, we're going to throw the clothes into the lake after. So embarrassing. Anyway, so what, what makes me sad, though, is that guy has some talent, but everyone's just like, well, this talentless guy was used to... And it's just got to hurt, right? And now it's part of the permanent record because here we are, you know, 40 years later. Those are your drawings. Stop
0: putting it on so, the well, screen.
1: Dead leg. <laughs> stop putting those on the screen. Damn it, dead leg. That's why I hate you so. Uh, okay. All right, so those are your suspects. And those, those pictures not only were taken from a child and drawn by a talentless hack, but those images, who's <laughs> probably a very good person, probably could bake brownies like nobody's business but the, that the the image of those two people was also taken from regressive hypnosis many years yes. later is that correct so you're asking you're asking a, a, a an adolescent or an adult to go back in time remember the worst day of his life this thing that's shaping everything and he'll say you know I went out there and I saw something and obviously it was so traumatizing that he, you know whatever happened He went back into the room, and he went back to sleep because when he was found, he was asleep. He saw these two men. He saw this horrific act and tried to repress it or something. On the show, we had uh, Jimmy Toro. He uh, survived a satanic sex cult. He was a little kid, and at one point, his horrible parents uh, put him in a casket with a dead person, and he didn't remember this most of his life. He had all kinds of issues growing up, but it wasn't until he had a, a, a moment of clarity, a break later, Uh, that he was able to say what happened to him as a kid. So we're trying to capture that forensically. And for some reason, we're doing that with this fucking jabroni that can't draw. It seems like a wasted effort. But that's the best that we're doing right now, right? Okay, enough said about the sketch artist. Uh, Poor kids (laughs) finding their dead... Can you imagine though coming out and saying that? And and I actually have a brand new theory about what he might have saw and why he uh, forgot or decided to forget. Do we wanna do we wanna talk more about uh, the identity and background of uh
0: Justin? I'm not done with the interviews, Justin John.
1: Square. We're not done with the interviews. <laughs> well, I didn't know if you were ever gonna stop no. stop laughing. So I just wanted to- I'm done. All right. I'm done. I've heard you say I'm done before, Kendra.
0: I'm actually done. i <laughs> Good.
1: Done with good. you. Coring off with Rick Henshaw.
0: <laughs> um, I've apologized like eight times for that. What do you want from me?
1: I don't know. I would so have done anyway. the same thing in your place.
0: <laughs> so one of the neighbors in particular was a little suspicious. His name was Martin, S- Martin Smart. Now, if you remember, I just said the child that, Rendered well, he didn't render these drawings, he gave the description for the drawings. His last name is Smart as well. Justin is Martin's stepson. Okay, so Martin Smart obviously lives in the uh resort there during the interviews. He was saying he didn't hear anything, but mysteriously, one of his hammers is missing.
1: Oh, how convenient! He makes
0: I know he makes this random statement that has nothing to do with anything and i just got done watching comm center where you guys covered this suitcase thing and it's kind of the same deal where it's like she's bringing up all of these things that don't matter it's irrelevant and people do that to deflect from the actual topic at hand because they don't they don't want to have to admit to it and i think that's what martin was doing because why the fuck how convenient right
1: We've we've both faced so, instances like this before in our criminal justice careers. I, as a dispatcher, once took a 911 call from a man who said that his vehicle was stolen. And uh, so he's dialing 911, and I'm like, why are you dialing 911? Did this just occur? And he goes, no, my vehicle was stolen today at 1 p.m. Well, it's like 11 p.m. now. And um, so I've got him on mapping, and I can see that he's currently mapping from like a fucking river in a park <laughs> So he's in the park at 11 p.m., like literally by the water where the river runs through the park. I'm like, why did you wait 10 hours? Why are you in the park by the water dialing 911 <laughs> saying that your vehicle was stolen 10 hours ago? The reason for that is spoiler alert on the road just outside the park, he hit somebody head on, fled from the vehicle down into the woods, and tried to, before a police officer could respond to the scene, get it in first. You heard it from me first. The car was stolen. I wasn't driving it. Not responsible for it. I'm not going to go to jail for drinking and driving. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to be held responsible for those medical bills over there. It was some unknown phantom that did it. People always think by getting the word in first that there's a primacy effect that, that they're going to be believed. And by him throwing this out there right away, I'm like, hey, uh, a hammer was stolen from here. And if you think about it, that makes sense. The killer would have just taken a hammer from nearby, which is where I live. So, you know, I don't. Who knows where that <laughs> hammer is now? But, you know, I don't have a hammer. Exactly. And the mere fact that there are and- two hammers, he never even had to mention that because the hammer's right there. You know, are, are his prints on it or aren't they? I mean, I don't know. Go ahead, though. <laughs> keep, keep going with the idea.
0: Okay. Um, that was really suspicious and weird, but Sheriff Doug Thomas later says that during the interviews, and he and the polygraph, which he passed, which you and I will talk about in a second. Um, He said that Martin gave all the investigators endless clues throwing suspicion away from him. So whatever he told the investigators, the sheriff says they believed him because he gave them endless reasons to believe him Hmm. or to throw suspicion off of him. I don't know if he's trying to say we just couldn't get it out of him, or if he's trying to defend the fact that his investigators didn't pry deep enough. I don't, I don't know what that's about. Yeah. <clears throat> but he passed a polygraph in extensive questioning, which we spoke about this bef- We've talked about this before. Polygraphs are essentially useless. They're, they're, ne- they're a tool.
1: They've never been adm- admissible in courts. They were invented in the 1920s. It was 1923 when they said they're generally not reliable enough to be evidence. But some people still yeah. kind of swore by it that, you know, even though this isn't is ironclad Cloud direct evidence in the same way that a fingerprint is, they put their faith in it. And I'm going to be honest with you now. Like, so we know that polygraphs are bullshit. We still use them all over the place. Police, criminal justice, mm-hmm. police agencies, they, they have candidates for police jobs go through these polygraph tests in which they ask them every single thing they've ever done. They. They open themselves up to all kinds of embarrassing admissions, not just criminal stuff, but they want to make sure the person's telling the truth. So they'll ask them about all kinds of things. And it, it never occurs to a criminal justice agency, a police department that it's in the best interest of the polygraph examiner to find deception and to fail a candidate. So the police department has to keep finding candidates to put up for polygraph tests so that the examiner could keep charging for them. There's all the earmarks (laughs) of a scam. And even though it's 100 plus years since we've invented the polygraph, and 100 years to this year that we've decided that polygraphs are bullshit, they're not good enough for court, to this day we still use them to find candidates to exclude from criminal justice hiring. So to say that this sheriff or whatever put a lot of faith in the polygraph, and you think he's a preposterous old bastard in 1981... Look to your local agencies and see if they're putting the polygraphs. Kendra, go ahead.
0: So to continue with Martin Short, because you and I have uh, deductive reasoning skills and we can easily say this motherfucker's involved some way, shape or form. Um, Martin and Marilyn, his wife, smart, moved to Keddie um, to the resort with Marilyn's three children, Justin being one of them. The couple moved there after a domestic violence incident the year prior and they basically just ran away. Or Martin took her and ran away is probably more what it, what it was going on there.
1: A lot easier than facing a, charges. Yep. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. Long history of abuse uh, reported by Marilyn. While they were there, Marilyn and Sue actually became really good friends and Sue was giving her friendly counsel to leave Martin Yeah, as any good friend would.
1: Of course, he views it as a threat to the integrity of his family and his marriage and his own self-image. He doesn't want to get. Yes,
0: of course. All that. Go ahead. And this, this built a lot of resentment in Martin towards Sue. At some point during the year while they were living in, in Keddie, Martin kind of bulldozed his friend into the home he allowed this man to live amongst his family. Uh, that man's name was John. <laughs> I'm going to butcher this, so please. John Boobody. Boobody? I
1: think it's Boobody, <laughs> but they just called him Bo. And uh, They al- called him Bo. Although I would say for the sake of ease on this podcast that you should call him Bo, particularly since that was his given name. I would prefer because this is a legal proceeding that you refer to him as Bobadie for the rest, for the rest of the okay. podcast. Okay, and uh, don't make me call my attorney on this one.
0: All right. Well, Bobadie was
1: a just it Bo. I'm just kidding.
0: Bobadie's Bo-, <laughs> Bo was a convicted felon and a drug dealer from Chicago who went by the nickname Severin John. Oh. So he had a couple of nicknames.
1: I like Bo better, but he's definitely the kind of yes. guy I'm going to have move in with my family.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. He was a mob enforcer, allegedly. This is what I read somewhere. But he was a mob enforcer.
1: He's down and out. Why he's he... living in Ketty, California with a family. It almost sounds like a That's kind of why I was like, eh. Yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, the economy's down. I got laid off by the mob. <laughs> I'm going to move in with my old buddy and we're going to start anew out in a cabin in California. Coming this fall to CBS.
0: <laughs> um, there's a show that's kind of like that, so I'm thinking of it. Anyway, <clears throat> Bo had a real problem with John Sharp and his friend Dana. He referred to both of them as punks oh. and accused Dana of stealing some amount of LSD from him.
1: Oh. Right. That's not good folks. So, uh, L- LSD is kind of a order <clears throat> beyond marijuana. This is, this is not the same as your kids finding your stash. Like, uh, and if we're talking about a former <laughs> mob enforcer, I'm just going to guess that maybe there was a little bit of a, uh, some, some drug trafficking going on. Go ahead.
0: Oh, sure. Um, I have no doubt about that. <laughs> the night of the murders, Marilyn says that, uh, Martin, Marilyn, and Bo all got together, and they were going to go to the bar. They stopped in at Sue's house, asked her if she wanted to go, because I guess they were all kind of friends.
1: So they're like, but hey, we're establishing declined. an alibi. Did you want to come with us?
0: <laughs> we're establishing an alibi for your murder, so do you want to come? It's only polite to include you, since you're going to be murdered. But she declined, so she, Sue didn't go. The three, of, the three of them left. They went out. Around 11 o'clock, they come back. Marilyn doesn't want to... She's done for the night, so she goes to bed. Martin and Bo allegedly go back out to the bar. And around 2 o'clock in the morning, Marilyn wakes up to them burning something in their wood stove.
1: Let's back up a little bit about that alibi just because I want to make sure that I'm not just casting a pall upon what is otherwise a good old-fashioned American night at the bar. It's what you and I would do if you had any respect for me at all. But <laughs> uh, They went to the bar... And they're uh, they're wearing three-piece suits. So they go in there and they draw all kinds of attention to themselves. This is this is Ketty, California. This is a failing resort town. I don't know what kind of bar you go into that's uh, playing uh, country music and you're wearing a three-piece suit. It's not a bar that you're going to see around here. They go in there and uh, they, they make a scene. People are going to remember them there because they're going to remember the suits. They also say the reason why they left early is because they switched the music over to rock and roll from country, which it's obviously not... You know, I don't know. That just doesn't seem like a good reason to leave. But whatever, I guess uh, mm-hmm. that was that was their stated reason for having leaving the bar. But later, yes, the, the two men are seen by Marilyn burning something. Go ahead.
0: Yes, that's all she leaves it at. like I don't know what it was they were burning. She just woke up to them burning something. So that's pretty much that's pretty much the case at that point. There's really not a lot more. There's not much else to go on. Uh, soon after the murders, Marilyn and Martin did separate, and Martin moved about 100 miles away to Butte County. Okay. In 1984, uh, a bottle collector, because back then they had you know the glass bottles and they were worth some money. People would go around and collect trash off the side of the road, take them to get recycled, get some money. Mm-hmm. This person was collecting bottles near Feather River Canyon in Butte County and stumbled upon across a human skull oh yep he called local law enforcement they come out they collect the skull go ahead
1: but it's probably just some primitive person right some caveman some ancient thing nothing that police need to investigate
0: yeah I should just left it alone to be honest
1: probably best left unsolved that's the Jonathan Bates way (laughs) that's why I'm not a cop however
0: well maybe they would have go ahead John (laughs)
1: However, something, <laughs> something exciting and macabre happened to point the investigators in a direction about this totally unrelated skull that we brought up for no reason. Go ahead.
0: I was going to say, I was going to do a flawless segue. Damn it. But <clears throat> they might have left it alone, except an anonymous caller called in a tip and said that the skull belonged to 12-year-old Tina Sharp from Kenny, California.
1: Now, obviously, the this person, person is unknown. They have guilty information. That's obviously your suspect. Run the records. Go hook them and book them. Case solved. On the next true crime Tuesday, we're talking about... No, okay. So, John, something happened here. Something went wrong, right?
0: <laughs> so, nobody knows who this person is. I We've talked about this before, too, where, you know, back in the day, I don't know... On the communications end, what type of technology they had to record this kind of stuff. If they even knew what phone number it was coming from right away. If the person's not on the phone for more than like 30 seconds, can you even determine where it's coming from? I don't know any of this. I don't even know if it was a man or a woman.
1: Even today, it could take a long time if it's not a landline. And how it was recorded is it would have been on a big reel. uh, Like what you see in those old movies where you see a tape going between two reels. I am not joking. That is called a that is called a cassette. It's like uh or a big uh reel of audio tape and uh the thing will stop and start when the phone when the phone records, so or when the phone turns on. So that's how tapes like that were kept. Uh and they were in these big reels that you had to play like that. So uh that is not a pristine or high fidelity way of doing that. And frankly, we're lucky that the recording survived at all because those things just get taped over after a while.
0: Yeah. So the anonymous caller calls and when the autopsy is done or the examination is done it is confirmed that this human skull belongs to tina sharp oh no how how convenient martin's a, a, a thousand <laughs> not a thousand a hundred miles away from kenny where tina went missing where the murders took place and her remains happen to be found in the same place that martin just ended up Three years later. This is 1984 at this point. The Sharps and Dana were murdered at in 1981. It's a little it's a little suspicious. Question for you. I'm just going to say it.
1: What What's the motive for not killing her at the scene? What's the motive for taking her with? And if they were seen by Marilyn burning something in the fireplace later, what's the location of Tina during that time? And what's the time frame... Them getting her out to Butte was she kept alive for some amount of time before they got out there and dumped either her body or left her out there, you know. Like I said, if she's a special needs kid,s and they drive her just hundred miles away and tell her to get the hell out of the car, and they know she's not going to make it, is it possible that she died of exposure or some other? You know, uh, you can call it natural causes because she was out somewhere where she wasn't supposed to be. She was still murdered because she was placed in that situation. But what what would be the reason? It wasn't because of a conscience. Look at the way that John and Dana and Sue were all treated. Um, on the other hand, speaking of conscience, the three boys in the bedroom, uh, 10, 5, and, of course, uh, 10, 10, 10-year-old Rick, 5-year-old Greg, and, of course, uh his stepson i
0: think justin was like 11 or something like that
1: 11 year old stepson so going back uh circling back around uh to the composite drawings uh made by justin i have a a theory about that maybe why they look so strange or maybe why they don't uh, make sense in addition to the artist not being uh, up to snuff what if uh justin smart comes out of his room and uh sees his stepdad Sees his stepdad Martin committing the murder along with uh, Bo or whatever, and uh, he knows if he ever says anything that he's going to basically get the same treatment. Uh, You're scared of your parents growing up, particularly when that's the kind of person that your your parent is. You know, if Martin's had a history of domestic problems, he's seen his father at his worst. His worst. He knows this is a shameful thing. He knows not to talk about it, and maybe you know, maybe I don't know if he represses something later, but maybe when he's pressed about what he knows about the investigation. You know, I can't imagine that he was just volunteering this stuff that he he just like one day says, oh, I remember something. Uh, It's possible that, you know, that that he was his feet were put to the fire about it. And he had to come up with uh, details on two men, just unknown men that were made up and made out made out of nothing. I don't the sketches obviously don't look very much like Martin or like Bo. And so if the the details of these two men were made out of whole cloth you know again sorry for for digging on the artist but they might just if the kids just giving random details about what they look like they might look like that
0: it's true and even i mean if you're so incredibly terrified because i don't know not everybody believes in hypnosis but let's just pretend for a minute that we do
1: are you hypnotizing me right now
0: (laughs) i don't have my my pocket watch right now but
1: damn it you know i'm relaxed i'm very susceptible (laughs)
0: so um let's say hypnosis works you have to make sure the person who's doing the hypnosis is doing it correctly you don't want a talentless you person have to doing it yeah no you have to be a very talented hypnotic person hypnotic- i don't know what they're called Hypno- hypnotizer guy <laughs> yeah so <clears throat> that has to be in play you have to ask the right questions i have a friend who does um past life therapy oh my again whether you believe in that or not it's up to you but there's specific questions you have to ask just because you're under hypnosis doesn't mean you just your subconscious just opens up you have to it's like it's an investigation so if the person's not, not asking the right questions or justin is so incredibly traumatized that even his subconscious is it's so deep in there you're, you know could absolutely be what you're talking about where the fear of retaliation overrides the memory and his little brain just was doing everything that it can to protect itself.
1: You have to remember because too, they don't, the, being, know, being the stepson means they have a weird dynamic. Like he doesn't love or trust this guy at all. You know, I think he's no he, particularly if he's abusing his mother, he's just, he's, he says he's a threatening stranger, a continued presence in the home, you know, uh, Mm-hmm. Constant threat yes. of, of retaliation for him saying anything. Go on.
0: So, um, anyway, where are we at? The skull, right? The skull's been okay. found. It's been identified as Tina Sharp. <clears throat> well, Tina's been found, but they don't really make a connection between Tina and Martin. So this this case is still, even though this is this clue has been found and they've they know where she's at, it's still cold. It's still unsolved. Martin eventually confesses to the killings to his therapist oh because he's struggling he's struggling with PTSD from these murders. He but he denied having anything to do with the boys. He only admits to Tina and Sue.
1: Points a finger back at Bo.
0: Which kind of makes sense because Sue was killed in a particular way and the boys were killed similarly but different from Sue and Bo had a problem with the boys and Martin had a problem with Sue. So if we're going with that theory, that does make sense.
1: And none of them them had a problem with any of the kids back in the the back room back there.
0: Right. And they may not have even known they were in there to be honest with you. Um, Martin gives another weird, vague clue although I guess confessing isn't really vague, but you know what I mean. Martin gives another clue to us via a letter he writes to Marilyn in which he says, I've paid the price for your love and now I bought it with four lives and you tell me we're through. Great. It's pretty, what are the four lives?
1: It's pretty damning. Um, I think, you know, a jury would find that very compelling if indeed it got admitted as evidence. Um, when I first heard that, I, you know, you have to hold out skepticism as an investigator because you don't want to, you have to look beyond the obvious. And the obvious thing is, as well, he's talking about these four people that he killed, but when he told the therapist that he killed someone, he took no responsibility for the two lives. So, uh, meaning do- John and Dana. So maybe, you know, he's responsible for that in a legal sense, but he doesn't feel morally responsible to the point where he told the therapist, I had nothing to do with the boys. Um, yeah. So you're
0: still there committing it. Still there committing it.
1: You know, who knows how his, his, uh, his uh, conscience parses that, you know? Um, So I'm, I'm holding out some, some kind of hope that um, I would not say hope, I guess, but maybe skepticism that that's not, maybe not what he means, but it's probably the most damning piece of evidence, but it's not the only piece of evidence. We, there's a a new investigator who uh, worked for the sheriffs at the time. Uh, His name is Mike Gramberg. Uh, Gamberg. He worked for the Plumas County Sheriff's Office. Uh, He was actually fired uh, from the Sheriff's Office back in the 80s for basically talking shit about the Sheriff and saying that the Sheriff did a fucking terrible job at investigating this. Uh, There's been some other podcasts who say that uh, Martin and the Sheriff were some kind of buds or something. And so he basically gave him a pass. Martin went out and did ride-alongs with the Sheriff or whatever. That's all speculation. We can't substantiate any of that, but... Uh, Gamberg, uh, did indeed get fired and he was brought back onto the sheriff's office. Uh, recently, I think it was maybe 2016 or 2018.
0: Yes. 2016. He
1: was made a special investigator on the case. I I think, I think Gamberg maybe, maybe even have known John or Dana at the time. I don't know how well he knew them if they were near the neighborhood, but there's some interest there. Obviously he, he knew these kids that got murdered. Um,
0: he was their karate instructor. (laughs)
1: Very good. Okay, so you so you knew that <laughs> detail. That's why we're a good team. So when he was investigating it, he found the tape where the the caller to the communication center said that you know this uh, uh, the skull that you found is Tina. She's from the Ketty murders, a hundred miles away, uh, which is you know definitely telling. Uh, that had never been properly logged as evidence, so it wasn't a lead for them to even pursue. I guess he found out about it, and it took him ten days to find it in a box in evidence. And uh, this being um, an old recording from '81, not not put on the best technology, it was probably put on a tape that had already been recorded over many times, so you're getting all kinds of scratches and backgrounds. And of course, your list, the re- recorded audio came from a phone from 1981, and the quality wasn't great back then. And so uh, he's not really able to tell a whole lot from that. Obviously, subsequent or uh, previous phone records from '81 are kind of hard to find. Uh, but there's even still more evidence. I know that we mentioned two hammers at the beginning. Kendra yes did you want to talk about the other hammer
0: yeah I will right now thank you so you're welcome
1: try to have pageantry missing- try to have a sense of you know the, these are the podcasts all have a mood about them
0: I'm a mood ruiner because I'm oh, apparently I, I know <laughs> anyway <laughs> the- <laughs>
1: I'm gonna pay for that later folks
0: i'm gonna get that civil war chest full of bees you mark my
1: words. that's my chest my grandfather fought for that
0: (laughs) uh drew will get that one so the missing hammers like
1: you do every month
0: (laughs) and i'll pay it in pennies
1: like it's a pittance to me i only take it from you because it hurts you
0: yeah, I've got a rich 95-year-old judge husband. I don't need your alimony, but I'll take it.
1: Folks, I'm going to tell you right now, when you get divorced,
0: number one, get a good
1: lawyer. Number two, cannot be the same lawyer as the person you're divorcing. <laughs> you cannot save money that way. It's not like a realtor, okay?
0: <laughs> the missing hammer, John. We must talk about this missing hammer. It was found by... a. Uh, Arkeys, this is a term that's new to me. Uh, this is something that metal detectors call themselves. Uh, it was found in a local pond near the resort that had been dried up. It was said to have appeared to have been placed there intentionally. Now, I don't know what that means because hammers are pretty heavy, so they kind of lay. They look, I would think it would look intentional regardless, even if you chucked it or if you just placed it there. Well, I don't know. I think.
1: Uh, you know, if there's no construction site there, there's no reason for a hammer to be there. I think that's kind of where the intentionality maybe comes in.
0: Okay, that's that's a good point. Okay. Well, it was. Also excuse a, me. It was
1: also in a dried up lake that had been wet at one point. So.
0: That is usually what dried up lakes are. They were wet at some point.
1: Previously wet, and
0: now they're not. Previously wet. So, um. And that was pretty much, it was taken for evidence. Gamberg took it for evidence. Didn't really go anywhere. In 2018, DNA was found on a piece of duct tape that was in evidence that was connected to a known live suspect. That's not, excuse me, subject. Not suspect yet. Um, According to Sheriff Hagwood, who was the sheriff in 2018, uh, it's believed that he says it's believed that there might have been a handful of individuals that committed these murders and that this DNA belongs to one of them, which would explain why we don't have updates because I was reading it and I was like, 2018 was five years ago. You have DNA, but sometimes those types of things, like you might have this information, but if you, there's stuff that the public doesn't know and doesn't need to know about investigations like this. And I've said this before on the show. I understand that America wants answers, especially for these, these types of cases. It's like a 40 year old case with no arrests, no justice. Three children were murdered. They're
1: calling out from their graves for justice.
0: (laughs) And it's, I understand the desire to want answers and, and all of that, but these things take time. And if you want a conviction and you want justice, They have to be done a certain way. And because this case is so old and evidence was not kept very well, it could take a really long time for these investigators to actually make an arrest if they ever do. These people are these people are probably older now.
1: Well I don't know. Martin Smart and Bo are as old as you can get. They're both dead.
0: Yes. Martin passed away in two thousand and Bo passed away in nineteen eighty eight. And one of the reasons why we know that he confessed to his to his therapist is because after he passed away, this therapist came out with this information. They're not allowed to talk about stuff like that because of the therapist-client privilege. Mm-hmm.
1: But even and but unless e- there's
0: imminent threat.
1: Yeah, but even then, uh, something said from one person to another like that. I, Kendra, a former police officer, she's had slam dunk cases before. She'll take it to a state's attorney, a prosecutor. And they'll be like, we need more. We want more from this. This isn't ironclad. It's not open and shut. And in a case that's already 40 years old, uh, you've got to have some pretty pretty good compelling evidence for the state to say we have an interest in still solving this. So even if they have some pretty good evidence, if your two primary suspects are, are dead and gone and you're not, you don't want to go through the expense of possibly – uh, you know, if there's any accessories after the fact, I know Gamberg has said that there are still, there was some, um, DNA from, from, uh, take it from tape that, uh, points to some people that are still living. Obviously if they had any involvement, they should be brought to justice, but it's not just as easy as we have some evidence and we're going to take it to the state's attorney and it's, they're going to get it done. State's attorneys have an interest. They have many more pressing cases. I don't know if you know this, but there's been some other murders in Plumas County since 1981. And they have those to prioritize over this. So,
0: correct. So it's not, it's not that yeah, it's not an immediate thing. It's, you not know? That, it's
1: not that the sharps don't deserve justice, but it's like it's been so long when the gears of justice turn so slowly, and it's a process, and you really have to be able to put it over the line to go after it. I could ex- that could explain why you know we're still waiting after five years.
0: Yeah, and and who knows who this person is or what else they could be possibly involved in. That's time sensitive and needs to be addressed prior to this. Like Mm -hmm. you said, it's kind of low priority because it's almost 40 years old and both of the main suspects are dead. So what's the motivation? I I understand it's not the answer people want to hear, but it's the truth. Yeah. Um, So there's a couple of theories that I'll go over real quick and then um, we can wrap it up. I think we pretty much covered everything
1: close, close to the end, but I have a little bit more. This is Cabot 20. If you're watching, uh, it's been demolished now, but this is kind of the site of where this all went down. You can see that it's very rustic. They're kind of tucked into the trees. That There's a cabin in the background. Uh, but Cabin 28 was eventually, it was demolished. Uh, it was the site of some uh, morbid speculation. People were going there. They were damaging it. They were sort of being disrespectful for what it was. But ultimately, uh, it's a disrespectful thing to sort of just keep around as a monument to the horrors that went on there. Case in point, uh, here's the family. Um uh, we have Sue and her five kids there, some of which made it through the horrors of that night and some who didn't, and some whose lives were changed in a terrible way forever. And it's, uh, it's horrifying. You know, we, we joke about it and we mentioned the sketch artist, and we had a good time and it, like I said, it's morbid speculation, but you know, we, we did have a, fa- a family destroyed and uh, hopefully justice yes. does come eventually, but go ahead. I'll let you uh, wrap it up and then I have my, my last point.
0: Okay. So there is a couple of theories floating around there were a lot of there were a lot of suspects in the case and we only covered the ones that we can deduce did it because otherwise we'd be here for 4 hours and that's crazy. One of the theories is that the uh, the boys John and Dana when they hitchhiked back to Ketty the hitchhikers basically followed them into the home and committed this horrible act. This doesn't really make sense to me because what's the motivation If it was a singular thing, like when Jeffrey Dahmer did that with that one guy, with Mm -hmm. his first kill, it was just him and that guy. So that makes more sense. What would be the motivation to go in there and just obliterate a family like that? To put up a fight like that? Like, it doesn't make sense to me. But it is a theory. Another theory that, you know, it's just Martin and Bo were plotting and they were angry and they were probably drug and alcohol fueled and they decided to go take their anger out on this family that's a very plausible theory the last theory i kind of like i'm not trying to tell anybody what to believe but this is my personal favorite that sounds bad but you know what i mean there was the theory is that there was a love triangle between martin sue and Marilyn, and the reason why this is, is kind of could be true is because Marilyn left Martin the day of the murders. It was also believed she might've enlisted help from Bo. She knew he was a mob enforcer. He was crazy. He would do it. He had connections he didn't like to kids. get rid of Sue and he didn't like the kids. It's more motivation for him to just go over there and lay hate on these people. Um, and she threw Martin under the bus immediately, which isn't in and of itself. Any evidence to suggest that she was in a love triangle or did a hit job but when you put it with all the other things it kind of does make sense Um, and also Sue there's no evidence I wasn't even going to say this because there's nothing to say that she actually did this but it kind of goes with the theory apparently she uh, dabbled in drugs and prostitution herself and if that's the case if Martin's paying her I believe she would have put her friendship with Marilyn to the side because she's got five kids to feed and mm-hmm. take care of. And Marilyn finds out she's been abused by this guy. He's been cheating on her the whole time. And now he's cheating with the one friend that she's found and made. I mean, crazier things have happened.
1: I actually so. believe that theory. Uh, you know, if he was, he was, having trouble with Marilyn, their marriage is on the rocks. He's pretty much a terrible person. You know, let's, if he's our primary suspect, it's a it conceit at this point that he is, but uh, it, it, his infidelity was one of opportunity. She's there, she's next door, or she's in that little cabin community or whatever. And yeah, she's friends with Marilyn or whatever. And uh, he, you know, men will make these decisions. They'll go out and do this, but then they don't want to have to pay a cost for it. So if it means that he's going to lose Marilyn, you know, for him to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. Certainly the most convincing way to do that is to end uh, Sue's life so that there's no more temptation in the neighborhood. She is gone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but...
1: Well, like, I mean... It's, it, the logic. I'm a little glib about it, but I mean, I, if you know, if you're a guy like him and, and if he is as bad as we say, I could see how that would be his uh, his reasoning or his rationale for doing such a thing like that. A case in point, you know, he didn't have anything to do with the two boys by his own admission, and he didn't, didn't touch any of the three kids back in the in the back room. I think the fact that the three kids were left out of it uh, and that there were motives to, to murder the two boys, the punks that were stealing the LSD, and the situation with Sue, I think it points to them very strongly as having motives to do it. If it was a crazy stranger who gave uh, John and Dana a ride back from Quincy, why didn't they go in and slay the, the three kids? I don't know. I mean, maybe you just didn't know they were there, but... Certainly is interesting uh yeah the, the, so the scene was was horrific there was evidence that it went on for a long time that there was pain and suffering and uh just truly a a terrible and horrific crime and it's one that's kind of gone down in the annals of uh of true crime and uh, if you're more interested about this uh you could go to uh ketty twenty eight dot com that's k e d d ie28.com. There's a kind of an old-fashioned website about it where it's got pictures of all the the principal parties. It's got forums in there that where people kind of spout off their different theories. There's some pretty salacious theories in there that frankly I don't want to touch because I think some of them are in bad taste. Uh, saying that uh, you know Tina was a part of these things or that Sheila was. I think that those things are egregious. Um, but you'll you'll see other people who are involved, uh, other people who are kind of on the peripheral. Guys like D Lake. Uh, he's the he. Um, I believe he was involved in lending uh, the pellet gun to someone. So he, he, the pellet gun initially belonged to to him. He was someone else who was in the area. So, you know, where did the gun come from? Where did it go? These physical things tie people together. It's very interesting. And the final thing I'll say about that on the website is that there's someone who contributes to the website who seems to have a lot of information, which jibes with a lot of facts to the point where. Uh, Gamberg has used this information to kind of bring him quickly up to speed on, on a lot of the details of the case. And a lot of people who see this guy posting in forums are kind of wondering, you know, what do you know and when did you know it? And uh, are you kind of getting your rocks off here talking about a case that you were maybe a party to? Or are you afraid to come forward? is this a timid person who's doing the best they can to put information out there? I don't know. The internet used to be kind of a mysterious place where you, every website was like a cue on thing where people were posting things and you had no idea who the hell they were. And uh, people had good information, <laughs> uh, and people and the internet, you know, just, uh, it all used to be, uh, kind of a true crime thing go, going on all the time. Cause it wasn't like Facebook where people were out there with their real identities on the internet. You kind of missed a cool thing with the old internet. Um, uh, but uh, Ketty that dot com is that website. If you wanted to, to dive into some of the deeper aspects, anything else on this case, Kendra?
0: No, that's that's the extent of the case. I mean, that's it's still unsolved. I think there, I'm sure that Gamberg and whoever else is now probably on the case is doing a fantastic job trying to scrounge whatever they can from this log of evidence that was is not very good if we're being honest and i'm hopeful that something will come out of it at some point hopefully soon
1: you always uh, you always, that's, lo- always love to see that that resolution in particular on a cold case um yeah well, of I, course I if, yeah if, if, if anything comes up we'll be sure to mention on the show all right, thanks so much for listening to this special episode of Night Shift, Top Secret Information, borrowed from True Crime Tuesday. Just want to remind you that Anthony Ramondi and Eric Tanzi will return on the journey down the rabbit hole next week. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Give me and Kendra a shot. Over at Feather Stop. we'd appreciate it. Finally, a reminder, Night Shift TSI is brought to you by GhostBed. Go to ghostbed.com forward slash ant or offer code ant. Anyway, that's how you support Anthony Ramondi. Here at uh, Night Shift TSI, that gets his bills paid, gets him to keep coming back every week and taking you down the rabbit hole. GhostBed's a great company. I've been a big supporter of various podcasts like these over the years. Great company values. They support first responders, veterans. Go over to GhostBed, you're going to get a great deal. 0% down, 0% financing. Uh, About anybody can afford it. You're going to get a great night's sleep. Industry-leading technology over there. Adjustable mattresses, cooling technology to keep you cool while you sleep. And uh, the GhostBed guarantee is that you can try it out for 101 nights. You know, it takes a long time to break in a mattress, see if it's working for you. You can try it out for 101 nights. And if you don't like it in that time frame, you could bring it back to GhostBed. And there's not going to be any hard feelings. GhostBed can make you that guarantee because they know that you're going to like it. As Eric's fond of saying, it sleeps so good it's scary. Go over to GhostBed.com. Use the offer code ANT. Support GhostBed, support Night Shift, top secret information. We'll see you back in the rabbit hole. The press, having gone through this thing the week before, were better prepared, and they were down at the Washington International Airport asking what these things were that were being picked up by radar. We were getting the target returns on the ground about 2 or 3 in the morning.
0: We were still getting these returns. Uh, Well, I think it's time for you to have your lysergic acid. Drink this down, and we'll be back after a while. how you're doing,
1: they said that they had information that in 1994 there was an actual PSYOPS Air Force document that project that is about quote project information power from space. Do you indeed think that there is life on other planets? Well, I'm not quite yeah. sure, but I suppose there would be. Uh, no,
0: he,
1: he seems definitely.
0: Definitely. How do you see this life and where? Oh, i seen a flying saucer. You see one, yes, no, definitely. Headline, go. I wish I could talk in technical or. We'll let you see can you... Did you say you can see it? No,
1: I can't quite see it. Tell me about it. One or two people have said to me, i said it."